Welcome back to the Female Founder World podcast. Before we get into the episode, I need to just say thank you to everyone who came to our PR workshop. We host these free virtual workshops every single month, and this was one of the ones we've hosted by far. It was with Sophie Wheel, who is an absolute PR guru. She's the founder of an agency called Nude Nation, and she's worked with some huge brands in the past. It's an amazing workshop. You can rewatch it if you're in our community on Geneva. I popped the link in the bio so that you can reach out and apply to join the community and get access to that workshop. Okay, so now on to the episode. We've got the co-founder of a business called Pattern Brands. They're a homewares company that both launches brands and also acquires homeware brands as part of their growth strategy. This is a really interesting conversation with Suze Dowling, the co-founder of Pattern. And she is such a seasoned entrepreneur. She is very, very skilled at scaling companies. And so this is great for folks who are a little bit further on in kind of their founder story and in their business and really want to understand, okay, how do I fuel the flames of this business and get things really on fire? Before we get into the episode, we have a quick note from the sponsor of our show, Gorgeous. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. The Princess Polly online store was born in a true startup style in 2010 in Australia, and we launched our US-based operation in Los Angeles in 2019. And now we are one of the fastest growing online women's fashion brands in the US and Australia. Our first value is customer centricity, so every single department is paying attention to the customer experience. We aim to deliver every single time and being customer focused is really daring to be different. We first and foremost listen to our customers and always remember that customer perception is reality. Our demographic is Gen Z and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. We show up to work each and every day with one goal in mind, and that is to provide the best customer experience for our customers all over the globe. I have a quote, and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization, and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. So AI and tech have played a large piece in a lot of the decisions that we've made at Princess Polly over the last year and going forward that we will make when it comes to utilizing systems to their fullest optimization. I will share that late last year, for example, we migrated ticketing platforms from from the very popular Zendesk to Gorgeous because it is the experience that we're focused on, the agent experience and the customer experience. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, you can go to gorgeous.com and start a free trial today. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. For people who don't know about Pattern Brands and what you're building over there, give us the elevator pitch. What are you building? (laughs) So Pattern is a family of brands really focused on the home. So we're just over two and a half years old. It's definitely been a real whirlwind of an adventure. Our products really range from kitchen tools and utensils to home storage, organization and decor essentials across, you know, the entirety of all rooms within your home. So we currently have four brands in the pattern family that we've publicly announced, which are open spaces, equal parts, gear and letter folk. 
And then we're adding brands to the family by the day. So can't say anything more about that just yet, but, you know, expanding, expanding the pattern family in a really exciting way. But what's kind of unique about us is that we are a one team, one cap table model. And so what that means is that all of our team members are actually pattern employees who work across all of our brands. So even though we have multiple brands within the family, everyone is really living at that pattern level. And, you know, really the reason we did that is because these days brands really need to be experts at everything, especially these D2C brands, right? So you have to go from email marketing to your paid marketing and digital to supply chain and logistics and, and all of the other things in between. And so patterns model is really about believing that there does need to be a new business model for America's really growing community of e-commerce brands. And our goal is to build the family via acquisition And we really fill the gap between those kind of massive scale IPO exits for entrepreneurs and, you know, well, no exits. So our business on the the, the kind of internal operation side is really about having these very thoughtful acquisitions of sustainable D2C first businesses. When brands join the pattern family, they have a real benefit of us having this very unique ability to be able to provide them with really world-class marketing, brand building, but also coupling that with the in-house operational excellence and, and a really mature brand platform. And for us, we're really excited because we're also, you know, giving these entrepreneurs the exit that they deserve. So ultimately at Pattern, our focus is really about creating value and sustainability for these D2C brands. And really building brands that matter for for our generation and hopefully for for many generations to come. Okay, there's a lot to talk about there. (laughs) I want to also flag that as well as acquiring brands in the home category, you've also launched a couple as well. Yeah, we did. Yeah, so both Open Spaces and Equal Parts were brands that we actually incubated. So for us, it's it's been an, an interesting journey, I would say. We had launched pre-COVID and really our goal was to incubate a family of brands. And we were able to really successfully launch these two incubated brands pre-COVID. Our second brand actually launched late January, early February of 2020. And then, you know, COVID hit. And it was... It really was an interesting time to be, you know, an early stage business and in some ways a fortunate time in that we were in the homewares category and people were spending more time at home than ever before. But it also really was something where we were just talking to all of these other entrepreneurs and learning about how they were dealing with the pandemic and how they were surviving and we kept on hearing the same things over and over again. It's easier than ever to launch a brand these days. You know, we have Shopify, we have these SaaS platforms, but there is kind of a certain amount that you can take a brand before you have to pull multiple facets for kind of the ongoing growth. So when you first launch a brand, you're really thinking about one or a selection of SKUs for your physical product. And it's really about finding product market fit. But as you grow and scale, there's increasing complexity across your supply chain environment, logistics, 
which was made even more complex during COVID. And then also across all of the, the marketing facets and, and then as you start to explore omni-channel, that's a whole new ball game in and of itself. And it kind of honestly got us thinking about, well, wait one sec, there might be an opportunity here. And we are big believers in really being very clear on your end goal, but flexible in how you get there. And so we mm-hmm. thought, is there a new way of looking at this for pattern? What about if we acquired these brands and, and invited them into the pattern family versus incubating our own brands? Can we still achieve our end goal of being a family of brands? And the answer was yes. In fact, this was an even bigger opportunity for us. And so that was really where I'd say it was late 2020 that we first explored acquiring a brand. And it was by early Q2 of 2021 that we'd actually made that first acquisition. I want to talk about a few things in there. First of all, how do you even learn how to acquire a brand if you haven't done that before? And then also like very specific stuff about how you guys are scaling these brands after you acquire them. But first, I just want to rewind for a second and and chat about what you were doing before Patent Brands. I think it's really helpful for people to understand your background, where you come from. It helps people to see themselves in your story as well. You moved to to New York from Australia and you started working with Gin Lane, which I think is like a design and marketing agency. Is that right? Exactly. So I'm I'm an Aussie originally, have been here, you know, about a decade. And it's been about that long of a journey, honestly, for myself and my two co-founders in knowing each other and kind of getting to where we are with patterns. As you'd mentioned, I joined an agency called Gin Lane, which was actually founded by one of my co-founders, Emmett. And we were really a brand and marketing agency that were kind of very early in the direct-to-consumer movement and really helped to develop a a kind of a brand and and design a digital process to help launch brands like Harry's, Hymns, Smile Direct Club, Quip and more. In our time together in running the agency, we really helped to launch about 50 startups and really partnered. Yeah, it was was an adventure. But you know what? This was over multiple years. But it was really cool because we got to, you know, really partner with entrepreneurs to to launch them in market. And so it really gave us just an amazing access to seeing firsthand, A, the entrepreneurial journey, and then B, how do you really build a brand? So brand strategy, your positioning, your naming, your voice and visual development. And then also what we really thought about was experience design, which is really how do you architect and design and build a digital ecosystem for the brand that allows them to really prepare for, for hyper growth? And so Jin Lane, it was an incredible learning experience, but it was one of those things where almost after so many years of working with these entrepreneurs to launch them to market, Nick Emmett and I kind of felt that it was just naturally time for us to take that next step, which was really to become entrepreneurs ourselves. Um, yeah. You know, it's, I, I, I always think one of the most kind of motivating things you can do is to really create something that matters to you. It's like what gets you out of bed every morning, so excited for the day. And I think building and creating pattern is, is really that for us. I love that. When you landed in New York and you started working with Gin Lane, what was your background? How much did you already know and how much have you learned while you've been on the job with this team? 
I mean, a lot has been on the job with this team. I, Google is my best friend. But my background is I actually originally studied education, specializing in behavioral and learning difficulties. So at uni, I honestly thought I was going to become a teacher. And then I, I kind of got a couple of years into my degree and realized mm, maybe this isn't what I want to do. I was nannying all through university and it was the woman that I nannied for that helped actually get me some internships and then ultimately, you know, gave me a job opportunity, really working in her PR agency after I graduated the university. And so I kind of had some, some really good experience on the ground in kind of building the PR engine. This is, you know, probably 15 plus years ago where there was really a dramatic rise in the popularity of smartphones. And that really accelerated that kind of online consumption of media. And it was that moment for me that was like an aha moment in my head for my own career where I thought, well, what do I want to do? And I kind of made a very deliberate decision that I wanted to be in an industry where I could feel that it was really emerging and, and early and, and at its infancy and that I could have a real impact. And so it was a pretty deliberate decision for me to walk away from my role in PR and actually move to a, a digital agency in Sydney that was doing a lot of, you know, for the time, progressive and disruptive, you know, work, really focusing on growing profitable digital first businesses. It was at the end of that job that I really decided to make a move to the US, kind of run, uh, you know, gin lane in the end. You mentioned something before and then you've touched on it again around something that you were working on at gin lane was how do you craft that brand ecosystem to prepare the brand and the business for growth what are some of the foundational things that you need to do when you're building a brand from the ground up that you think okay this has the potential to be something huge what is the framework there when I kind of break it down there's kind of three things that come to mind and they all ladder up to, to what is your brand but they're kind of components of that component number one is the brand itself everything does really start with brand and I'd say like a really big part of magic I think of the work that we did at Gin Lane and, and hopefully now that we're doing a pattern is that you have to be able to really craft a brand that has a really multi-dimensional personality as I think that is a key part of something that will allow your brand to really sustain through hyper growth. So when we think about crafting a brand, we really are deliberately architecting them to be very adaptive, very approachable and really articulate in about who they are. And the reason that we do this is because we really want to create like a very human experience. So you want your brand to feel human. You want it to evoke emotion because ultimately this is how you have increased brand resonance and overall kind of increased lifetime value within that. We firmly believe that your brand can be a component of your competitive moat. We really think about content and storytelling and how that can be powerful in bringing the personality to the life. And then also we really think about all of the touch points in the ecosystem of the brand and how your brand exists within each of them. A great brand is like a great person. You really trust them, you enjoy their company, and you really want to spend time in their presence. 
And it's, it's these kind of little interstitial moments, whether it's kind of the thoughtful insert in like the packaging or how your customer service team takes time to really talk to the customers or an ad that's kind of tongue in cheek and makes you chuckle or something we actually think about a lot is actually the footer on your website. We are known for kind of, I'd say quite chunky footers in that we like to have a really gentle ending to the page because no one wants to get to the bottom of the page and feel like it's just gone, you know? Um, Mm. But I think it's these little subtle moments that are really detailed and caring that, that linger with people. And when you then do these moments really consistently across the user journey, that's great branding. But I think component number two that is hand in hand with this is to create a great brand, you have to also put your customer first. At Pattern, we've actually kind of coined this term that we call direct with consumer. I think it's really about how do you create an ongoing conversation with your customers We've spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours speaking with our customers to really understand their relationship to their home and how we can provide them value. And I always say to any entrepreneur, you need to be the one on the phone, literally talking to your customer, Mm -hmm. not just putting this on someone else, because again, you are crafting this for them and with them. And then the third component is your product and your product could be in some instances, a digital based product, or it could be a physical product. In our instance, we sell physical products. And I think that's kind of the third thing to think about when preparing for hyper growth is you need to make sure that you are set up to make and sell great products. And I think this is really where for us at Pattern, we're really trying to do our best to build this really trusted house of brands that are centered around products that our consumers actually really love. As much as a lot of this is consumer facing, building a great product is also about really going back, right? And thinking about how do you make sure this is quality? How do you make sure this is profitable? In today's age of COVID, it's definitely much harder, but it is possible. You're so eloquent in the way that you communicate those (laughs) fundamentals. You should be a business teacher. But (laughs) I mean, we've got you on the podcast. You kind of are right now. When you were first launching brands, we'll talk about acquisition in a minute, but when you were looking at launching a new product-based business, how were you validating the idea? What kind of insights were you pulling from the market? What makes a good business idea? For one, it it needs to be something that you yourself are really passionate about and are willing to like live and breathe by. And you love home, right? You love home, yeah. This is my obsession since I was probably three years old. So home is is kind of the the gating factor where everything we do is within kind of home and home life categories. Yeah. I think when to take an example like open spaces. So that's our home organization brand and. Our kind of mission with that brand is to really create home organization that is a very curated select skew set, so not overwhelming, and is really so beautiful that you are comfortable having it on display. And that came from, honestly, a very acute pain point that we had in New York City with tiny little apartments. It's We all have these tiny apartments and so you need to make sure your organization looks good and beautiful because it will be on display. But so we start off with the kernel of an idea, but then you have to think about, okay, what's the market opportunity and kind of the commercial opportunity here? And so that starts really looking at market trends. 
So pulling access to anonymized credit card data, understanding share of wallets. So uh, what categories of the home have the larger share of wallet? What categories have been declining over the years? What categories are, are growing? And we really saw organization as being a category that based on the market data had a lot of opportunity and was really you know, a, a good commercial area for us to, to be within. Then we really need to think about, okay, what's the competitive space and how do we make sure that we're creating something that actually should exist and it can be better than, than what is out there. So it's really about doing a lot of competitive research and understanding what are the brands that, you know, are, are already out there? What's the merchandise offering that they have and where do we see as concrete gaps? And then it's really about, again, the consumer and, and really talking to, at that point, we didn't have any actual customers, but you can talk to other people that would be in what you believe your consumer segment to be through doing surveys, et cetera, to really understand what it is that is a key pain point for them. One of our best-selling products, for example, is our entryway rack. And the reason I think that is so best-selling is because that was such an acute pain point time and time again that we kept on hearing from, from people. I live in a small apartment and I don't know what to do with the chaos of my shoes, but I also want something that's multifunctional. I can't find anything that's attractive and long-lasting. We were able to solve for that in, in our product design. And then pre-launch, we actually had a fake brand that we created and a website that we created for it where we were able to run some advertising and testing on some of the marketing like messaging and positioning to really get a sense for what was resonating with folks and what wasn't to make sure that when we did come to market we were really hitting on the most nuanced messaging that we could to really resonate from from day one and again I think that just is why really that belief of direct with consumer is so important because it does need to be a two-way dialogue in how you create and build a brand because you're you're not creating something for you you're creating something with your customer base because ultimately if you don't have that resonance with your customer base, your business isn't going to thrive and succeed in the long haul. That makes sense. I'm really curious to learn more about what you were saying about pulling all the data in the beginning and where were you going to get that information? Like are there specific sources that you go to to get that, that data or is it all based on your own surveys? Like where are you going to get that information? There's a mixture of things. There are reports that you can buy essentially for some of those honestly they were a little costly for us as an early stage startup to be able to afford so we were able to work with folks in our network whether that was our mm -hmm. investor or advisor network to be able to get access to some of those things especially things like credit card data etc for things like surveys this is really where you are able to survey like in the general population whether it's via your survey monkey or, or other platforms a broad sweep of people and that's really where again it was very much about us going out and really getting significant amounts of data from those surveys in order to narrow in on on where we saw the biggest opportunity and ultimately, in, in how we were able to narrow in on what should our launch skew set be, spending kind of the time up front to do that research 
has really paid dividends in in having them that resonance. Like something we always joke and say is measure, you know, 10 times cut once. People always say measure twice cut once for us 10 times. Of, <laughs> I think making sure that you're really planning and being very strategically sound before you go into execution mode. What time frame are you taking for this? A lot of the founders that I speak to, they're like, well, I had this pain point. So I just created this thing and then I organically turned into this thing. And now look, I've got this business. You're coming to it from such a structured approach that I think is really impressive. And a lot of founders can really learn from. And so how much time are you putting into this phase pre-launch? I'd say certainly upwards of 12 months. I'd say anywhere between 12 to 18 months, depending on, you know, the, the brand that, and level of complexity with your supply chain, which mm -hmm. is certainly a gating factor. And then, you know, we did air in a number of our initial units, which does drain your margins. And so it's not something I, I typically recommend to folks, but I think uh, the other thing to really just think about is once the product is produced, there is time, you know, whether it's air or on ocean before you're, you're actually having that product in market. You can do your pre-launch strategy, which is something with open spaces that we actually did where we had our soft pre-launch in, in late January of, of 2020, but the items themselves weren't shipping until March of 2020. So we were able to get some early sales data to also help inform subsequent purchase orders or future inventory that we needed to place. You mentioned before that you had a bit of a test website, you're driving some ads and kind of figuring out what was working, what was resonating, what wasn't. Talk me through what is on that site. Do you have a product? Do you have product imagery? Like what, what is there? Yeah. So it was a very simple like splash page essentially that was the equivalent of like a pre-launch splash page mm -hmm. that had like you know, sign up here if you want to be notified when these products come into play. So it was kind of giving some examples, some renders. We did have a social account that we were starting to, to run ads from. It was certainly, I'd say, very skeleton, but something that is something I, I encourage people to do is just thinking, how do you as early as possible in the process start to get indicators that could inform the positioning for this product, the, at some points, the design tweaks, you still actually may want to make to the physical product itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and also early kind of data to inform potential demand, because one of the big things in physical product, especially right now, of course, is just product lead times and trying to get kind of the best guesstimates that you can for, for product purchase orders is, is important. Okay. That makes sense. So now Patton is moved into the strategy of acquiring brands that are doing between one and 10 million in top line revenue. And, and then you're going on to scale those brands and really increase the size of those companies. And I want to understand how you're doing that. I think that we've well and truly covered, not just in this conversation, but in so many conversations, launching, how to get that early traction, how to figure out whether your idea is a good one. But once you have some traction, how do you really like scale a business, particularly a homewares business? Absolutely. So I think to kind of take a step back, you know, we do look for brands that we feel have very healthy and sustainable margins. So that is important to us that the 
gross margin picture of a business is able to be something that gives us enough room financially as a lever yeah. in that business. What's a good margin in, in home so, as a category? For, for us, it's really about, you know, saying a fully loaded gross margin of over 50%. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I think uh, there has been variability, typically anywhere between 50 to 70 percent, depending on specific product lines, et cetera. But I do think that's just very important as, as a kind of core fundamental when building your brand is to really understand the business unit economics. And it's something that we very much focus on. The brands we you know, bring into the family also do have a loyal customer base. So it is something where we really like to see organic traction in the brand. And the third point is that really the product itself has to be really wonderful quality and something we're super proud to produce. And then to your question of, well, how do we then think about building these brands? They have these good fundamentals coming in, right? They have great products. They have a very loyal customer base and they have kind of business unit economics that makes sense. For us, it's been really okay, how do we create brand awareness and exposure and how do we scale these businesses? And we really think about having a repeatable template that is really allowing for true omni-channel brand growth. So initially we really focus on direct-to-consumer, but then after we've really established those direct-to-consumer foundations, we do expand into multi-channel And for us, it's like these value creation levers that can really enable us to win in the long term. I'd say day one of a brand joining the the family, prior to them joining, we've done deep diligence on the brand to really understand and kind of look around corners, look under things and understand what, what is this brand and what is this business. And day one, it's been making sure we're validating that top to bottom. So we want to make sure we really understand and value their consumer. So we make sure we take the time to get to know their consumer to do a lot of consumer insights work. I think this is really where the direct with consumer philosophy comes into play. And then we also really want to make sure we understand every single lever financially in the business. So we go down to the most granular level from raw material costs to their supplier base and their ability of their existing suppliers to scale with us. The purchase order, minimum order quantities, we think about how can you get price breaks for placing above minimum order quantity. We look at inbound and outbound costs. We look at outbound shipping zones and the locations of warehousing or 3PLs. We go back and look at the trailing 12 months of sales into daily sales reports. So it's literally every single day, what were the sales of that day and why? Because that allows us to look for trends and spikes and fluctuations because it's really important to us that we can understand and explain what was happening in the business and why it was happening. Because when we understand that, we can then look at how can we determine the strategy to optimize easy low-hanging fruit is typically the marketing strategy and for us core marketing channels are certainly paid social so facebook and instagram and then google and search and shopping i think very common you know whether you're incubating a brand or growing it for any d2c brand to be focused in these areas while post ios 14 things have definitely become more challenging they still have the largest revenue potential due to like the kind of advanced algorithm and tracking capabilities. For us, it's really about 
how do we think when we launch paid marketing about like creative and then targeting? And we've seen that creative really is the highest impact. So we really think about testing. One of the most important things that we do for these businesses is when we're launching paid marketing, really have very frequent creative testing. So all of our creative is done in-house and we make sure that the ads have a very clear value prop of the product to the Mm -hmm. customer. Then we really think about variety. So that's something that's very important of how do we reach different demographics? We really also look at variety of the content itself. So we see video is a really big driver of performance and of course UGC as well. And then budgeting. So we actually, before we bring a business into the family, are often running tests on their paid marketing accounts to really validate prior to actually purchasing this business, how many conversions do we need to really drive a clear read and understand kind of what the expected behavior would be so that we can use that in our forecasting. It's a lot about what's the outcome we're trying to drive towards and how do we work backwards from there to make sure we're being very structured in our approach. We also look at wholesale opportunities from an omni-channel perspective, Amazon opportunities, and recently we've actually been expanding into looking at some brick and mortar opportunities as well. Very cool. When founders think about reverse engineering their business and they have this vision that they want to build something that at some point can be acquired, what are those things that they should be thinking about as they're growing to to create a business that would be appealing to someone like you? It really is about ensuring that it is a incredible product that has a pretty distinct point of differentiation in the product. We look for unique intellectual property, whether that's a design patent, a design language, and kind of just aesthetic that they really have coined in a best in class. So I think ensuring that the product itself is distinctive. We really don't look at businesses that are just white labeling their products. Mm -hmm. And then really it is businesses that have those sound business fundamentals, because I think Sometimes, especially in in D2C, it can be all about chasing top line sales. For us, it's actually more important, does this brand have brands like EBITDA? And is this brand profitable? And can this brand be self-sustaining? And so we would rather a brand have a smaller top line business, but be more profitable and show that it has Mm. kind of the solid foundations there than a brand that has a much greater top line that perhaps hasn't got the core financial underpinning that will allow us to pull a lot of these other levers in order to scale the business. So I think really those gross margins and and kind of the core financials in how they think about staffing and how they've thought about marketing in the past, et cetera, just really, really important. And also allow them to have the most successful exit opportunity in that, you know, businesses are typically valued based on multiples of EBITDA. So the, the greater the EBITDA, you know, dollars and percentage, you know, the, the more significant the opportunity for the entrepreneur themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You've given us so many great tips and recommendations there, but I just want to close by asking if there is a resource, if there's something that's helped you as you've been up-leveling as an entrepreneur that you can recommend other folks engage with. 
I'd say for me as an entrepreneur, the kind of biggest breakthroughs and resources have really been honestly more about the work that I've done on myself. I think Mm. learning how to be really vulnerable and to be able to ask for help and support and, and feedback has been really invaluable to then unlocking resources because I think I've been able to then kind of break down some of the the challenges there I also found this book that was called speaking to influence and it was all about basically how do you master your leadership voice Mm -hmm. and that was something that was a really helpful tip for me in how I thought about myself as an entrepreneur but also as a leader because as your business starts to scale you will build a team and you will have, you know, potentially investors or other folks in the network, and you are going to have to really master your own leadership ability and ability to hold a room. And then I'd say, you know, just take it from a different angle and just on a very tactical level, there's been a few platforms that I think there's a couple of operational tools that I wish someone had told me about a few Ooh, years ago. Up. One is a platform called Anvil which is a supply chain management platform. And it really has been pretty transformative in how we've managed our supply chain and have engaged with our suppliers, how we've approached our quality control processes. It allows you to communicate in a really seamless way via this platform. Skubana is another one, which is an order management system that basically considers a middleware between you and and whoever your 3PL is. And the big reason I say that that's awesome is because it gives basically all these if and then statements. So it allows you to really control your order flow and to kind of go back to my earlier points of understanding, say something like outbound shipping and shipping zones. It's amazing to have the power to say, if it is this combination of items, then I want it to be FedEx versus UPX. And I want it in this dimension box to give that information and pass that through to your 3PL. So it allows you actually a lot more flexibility and control. Um, And then the other big kind of couple of things I will say is Cube, which is really modern FP&A, so financial planning and analysis. So it um, is something that we use with our finance team and accounting team to really drive much faster strategic insights um, in honestly just a few clicks. So it keeps basically your finance team pretty lean while giving you the insights that you need. Um, And then last but not least, though, this is a tool that you do need some data for it to be most impactful. So I'd say if you've been in business at least a year and you have a physical product um, where you're doing inventory planning, um, something we use every single day is a platform called Singuli, um, which is AI-driven inventory management, basically allowing Mm. you to... um, be much more um, kind of forward thinking and how you look at your inventory. And then last but not least, actually, I'll say the last one is big shout out to the platform Settle. So Settle is um, alternative financing for a lot of your kind of working capital needs. And again, thinking through inventory, inventory is usually a big part of your, your cash flow outflows. Um, so I'd say those are some of the things that it's like, if I had a cheat sheet two and a half years ago and someone could say to me to use a lot of those, it would have saved me a lot of time and energy and probably money um, looking at other alternatives and then kind of coming across these. 
Okay, that's a great list. And I'm going to link all of those in the show notes because I bet people have like paused, rewound that, tried to listen to it again <laughs> to get them all because there's some really great tips. So thank you so much for coming on the show and for all of your amazing insights. You're so impressive. I've loved chatting oh, with you. Thank you so much. No, this was so fun. I really appreciate you having me. And if anyone ever has any questions, they can always feel free to reach out. I know what a journey it is being an entrepreneur. So I always want to help anyone that I can. How can people find you and Patton Brands? So they can find me on LinkedIn at Suze Dowling and on Instagram as well if they want to see lots of pictures of, of my cat and my home life. <laughs> and then they can find us at Pattern Brands, which is our website, patternbrands.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you.